May we be challenged by your ministry to us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you to the worship team. I've lost, I mean, I would have lost count long ago, the number of sermons that I have preached on texts and writings that Paul has done. His uh, writings are so influential that even if you're not preaching on something that he's written, what he's written influences the thinking. He has written so much of the New Testament that, that uh, it's... It, form, it formulates our whole theology, our whole way of thinking. Issues of morality, issues of interpreting Christ, issues of understanding Jesus as the Messiah in this world, all can be attributed to uh, many of the things that Paul has written. In fact, the significance is such that I can pretty much state with 100% certainty that every wedding I have done I have either read 1 Corinthians 13 or made mention of 1 Corinthians 13, which is uh, Paul's definition of love. And even people who are not Christians will know uh, something of that passage of Scripture. So Paul's Paul's writing and his life, his ministry has really defined Christian witness through, uh, through the ages. When you study in terms of ministry, you have to do credits, university credits that focus exclusively on what they call Pauline theology, uh, credits that focus exactly just on the things that he wrote and, and working through some of his interpretations of, of how to live a faithful Christian life. Paul has um, also written some controversial things in Scripture. I've spent a significant time in my ministry um, correcting some of the things that people have wrongly interpreted or, or maybe speaking to some of the things that I have disagreed with in the writings of Paul. Particularly, uh, some of the things that Paul wrote have been used to treat women as second-class citizens for, for many years. Sometimes the things that he wrote were used by uh, people who had their own self-serving interests in terms of, of elevating men above women. And um, those were never, it was never really the intention of Paul in those things. Sometimes Paul has been accused of being anti-Jew, of creating the sense of, of anti-Semitism that exists. And there would be many Jews who would say that where Paul writes and he just collectively terms, he just collectively says the Jews Um, were chasing them or the Jews were fighting against them, uh, because he just uses one big term like that, it has, uh, people have interpreted that as saying that the Jew, they could, they could persecute the Jews or, um, or treat them badly because of the way they try to stop Christianity in the beginning. The reality is quite different though. If you read scripture, you'll find that many of the first believers were Jews Lots of the followers were Jews. And when Paul says the Jews, he actually really means just a small group of Pharisees, a small group of, of leaders who were, who were really out to stop the ministry from taking place. And, uh, and I fully agree with, um, with Adam Hamilton where he says that, that had Paul realized that he was writing something for all of eternity and not just a letter to a church, which in his mind was what he was doing. 
I'm sending a letter to a church. Um, he had no way of knowing that what he was going to do was write something that would be scripture for 2,000 years. But had he known, I don't think he would have used such a collective noun in, uh, in that way. So Paul's writings are, are really significant. In, in fact, it's interesting to see that, that Paul himself grows in the writings from his earliest writings through to the end. There's quite a difference in his own theological understanding. At one point, he even says that, uh, that he himself lacked a lot of grace uh, in terms of how he handled things. And, and I find that tremendously encouraging, that this great apostle, it reminds me that, that actually he was just a human being. He was like me and you. And yes, God had inspired him in the writings and he was incredibly faithful, but there were things in his life that he was working on, things that God was busy uh, sanctifying, just like there are things in my life or in your life that God is, is working on in us. And I find the fact that he had his own struggles in faithfulness comforting and, and challenging in many ways. I've enjoyed, I'm quite fascinated by his, uh, his life and, uh, and some of the things that he wrote. When, um, when Debbie and I went to Rome, we actually went to a prison where Paul spent uh, a couple of years uh, in, this, in this Roman prison. If you have a look at this next slide, um, the prison that he went into, is it there? There, uh, you can see that, that actually is the entrance and the exit to the prison. It is a hole in the floor. The prison was a dungeon underneath some building. It's now uh, the building at the top they have converted into a church. But that dungeon there remains. And uh, the only way in and out of the dungeon was to be lowered down by a rope and to be pulled up by a rope. They now have a, a staircase which you can get in, which is lucky because I don't actually think I, in my current state I would fit through uh, that, that hole. But um, if you are lowered through the hole or you do walk down the staircase, if you have a look at the next slide, you come across this place. It is that, I'm standing against the wall. That is how big it is. Um, it's lit up by the flash of the camera. There's a little bit of artificial lighting so that you can see where you go. But there would have been no lighting in the time of Paul. It's cold. It's, uh, it's, it's got that musty sort of underground uh, smell to it. There's algae and, and things on the walls. <clears throat> There's a little altar that the Catholic Church have, have put there in, in, uh, in, in memory of this uh, place where Paul uh, spent so much time. If you look at the next slide, I'm actually sitting down because I can't physically stand up. The roof isn't that high. I would have to, uh, Debbie's much shorter than me, but, um, but you can't really stand, if you're my height, Paul's height, I think, uh, you wouldn't be able to actually stand up. Um, and can you imagine spending a couple of years in that situation? And yet it was in that, um, it was in that prison that he wrote his letters to the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, and a personal letter to Philemon. And uh, the letter to the Philippians is, in fact, uh, I'd probably say it's my favorite book in all of Scripture. It is the most beautiful, uplifting piece of writing uh, that Paul does. And when you think that he wrote it from in there, uh, that is just, uh, just astounding to me. But all of these things that, that Paul has uh, done and all of this fascination with him, 
I've never actually done a sermon series on the man himself, on the nature of the places that he went to. Because really, with the exception of Rome, uh, the places Paul went to, they're, they're not popular like the Holy Land places where you won't find them well kept like, uh, like Jesus, uh, the places where they said Jesus died or Jesus was born or Jesus walked here or this was the, this was the Garden of Gethsemane. The places for Paul are really kind of left in ruins. A lot of cities have been built over the places that he was. And, uh, and so you more than likely aren't going to be making a trip to those places to have a look. People don't do sort of the trips of Paul like they would do the walking in the footsteps of Jesus. But it, there's a tremendous amount to be gained from seeing those places, to, to be taken from... Uh, there's a tremendous amount that we can, we can gather that, that teaches us about Paul and, and tells us about this ministry by actually seeing those places. And so I'm thankful that someone like Adam Hamilton has actually done the journey. He's gone over there, he's taken a camera crew with him, and, uh, and he's gone through all of these places. And I hope that through this series that Paul's life and mission and the ministry journeys that he's taken will become a little bit more real to us. And we'll connect with our faith in a, in a new way. And, and hopefully each chapter of the journey will cause us to say, how does this part of Paul's story speak into my life? How does it challenge me to a life of greater faithfulness? How does it grow my understanding of, of God's call upon my life to be a faithful disciple of his? And so let's, uh, let's take 10 minutes and, uh, and watch the first uh, the first video where Adam really cover, covers um, the first 40 years of Paul's life. a first century rabbi to travel thousands of miles by sea and by land, to be beaten, imprisoned, and ultimately beheaded for his faith. It was a call, a call to turn the world upside down. This is the story of the Apostle Paul, whose writings continue to shape the lives of one-third of the world's population, a man second only to Jesus in his impact and influence on the Christian faith and whose witness defines what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. No other human being aside from Jesus himself has had a greater impact on the world 
or on the Christian faith than the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul in his conversion experience encountering Christ was radically changed. And then he spent the rest of his life reflecting on the meaning of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, starting churches across the Roman Empire, writing letters to those churches, so that in the end, 13 of the 21 New Testament epistles were written by him. His faith and his reflections on the meaning of Christ are what shaped and laid the foundation for the Christian faith and for Christian theology, which continues to shape our faith, Christianity's faith, to the present time. And over the next few weeks, we're going to retrace the story, the life, the message, the ministry of the Apostle Paul in the very places where he walked, in the places where he taught, in the places where he started churches. I'm excited to take you on this journey with me as we explore the life, the message, the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So let's begin. The story of the Apostle Paul begins in what is today Southeast Turkey, but what was at the time Southeast Asia Minor, in a city called Tarsus, which was the capital city of the Roman province of Cilicia. Paul's hometown of Tarsus was nestled between the Mediterranean Sea and the Taurus Mountains. If you were to visit there, you'd find that there's just one small stretch of road, Roman road from Paul's era that's been excavated. Most of the Roman city is underneath the current modern city of Tarsus. And then there is a mountain pass that the highway passes through today. Paul would have passed through in his day. Very famous on either side, the mountains have been cut away. This is called the Cilician Gates. And Paul would have passed through these gates on his way up to central Turkey or central Asia Minor on his second missionary journey. There is a well there that's called St. Paul's Well. Was it his well? Who knows? But it certainly does anchor the story and remind us that Paul grew up in this place. And it was there that he was raised in a devoted Jewish home. His name, given by his parents, was a Jewish name, Saul, named after the first king of Israel. But he was also, his family were also Roman citizens, and so he had a Roman name. His Roman name was Paul. He would have been trained in, in both the Roman schools, uh, in the Greco-Roman schools, and so he was familiar with Greek thought. He was familiar with the Greek language. Of course, it was his native language, probably. And, uh, and it was here that he learned the Greek philosophers. At the same time, his family was very devoted in their faith and their desire to follow God. And as a young man, he was sent to Jerusalem to study under the finest of the rabbis of the time, a man named Gamaliel. And it was there that he was trained in the, in the uh, law and in the prophets, in the writings, in the oral traditions of his people, and in the oral law that had been passed on from generation to generation. He was deeply devoted to God, zealous for the law, and he was trained in the school of the Pharisees so that he described himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees and as pertaining to the law, as blameless as one could be. This was the Apostle Paul, one foot in two worlds. Now, Paul writes of his own life and of his faith before he'd come to faith in Christ in these words in Philippians chapter 3. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, Faultless. It's likely that Paul was in Jerusalem on that Passover when Jesus was crucified, though there's no evidence that Paul was there actually watching this take place. But we know that shortly after that, after the disciples began to proclaim that Jesus was raised from the dead, after they said that he was in fact the living Lord and the Messiah and the King of the Jews, the Jewish leadership began to try to figure out how to deal with these followers of Jesus. And, and as they did, Saul, Paul, volunteered to be a part of squelching this new movement. 
And so he began harassing these Christians and, and, uh, and, and stood by, we read in Acts chapter 7, he stood by as Stephen was stoned to death, one of the leaders of the Christian movement, the early leaders of the Christian movement, stood by as he was stoned to death. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, we read that he stood by giving approval as the first Christian martyr after Jesus was put to death. And, and so it was, as he was uh, leading this charge, that, that he was determined to, uh, to arrest and to, um, and to really wage a battle against these early Christians, believing that they were false teachers, and wanting to demonstrate to those in Jerusalem his devotion to the faith, he begins arresting Christians. He begins throwing them in jail, both men and women. And it was at this time that he received letters from the high priest to go to Damascus in Syria and to search the synagogues there for those followers of Jesus who had made their way to Damascus in order to arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem. As he's on his way, he's on a stretch of Roman road, not unlike this stretch of Roman road here, and suddenly there is a blinding light. He's knocked to his knees and, and he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he cries out, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And Jesus then and there calls him, calls him to be his follower. And, and he tells him to go on into the city of Damascus and there, that, there he'll find a place to stay. And, and then there will be a man named Ananias who will come and find Saul and tell him what to do. And so he's taken to the city of Damascus. He's blind for three days. For three days, he's left without the ability to see. He doesn't eat, he doesn't drink, he just prays during that period of time. Everything he thinks he knows has been taken away from him. He, he's been brought to his knees, not just physically, but emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually. And now he's ready, he's right where God needs him to be in order for him to answer the call. And now there's Ananias, who is a believer in, in the city of Damascus, and he's aware of who Saul is. In fact, he's afraid of Saul. So are the believers there, because Saul is coming to arrest them. And the Holy Spirit speaks to Ananias and says, Ananias, I need you to go find a man named Saul. And he tells him where to find him. And he says, I need you to share with him the good news. And so Ananias works up the courage to find the man who'd been persecuted, and even stood by at the death of one of the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. He goes to find this man, Saul. He explains to him the gospel. And on that very day, Saul is baptized blind. He's baptized as he yields his life completely to Christ. And as he comes out of that water, it's like scales falling off of his eyes. And suddenly, the one who was lost has been found. The one who was blind can now see. After Saul's conversion, he says that he went off into the, into the Arabian desert and it was there. He, uh, he spent time praying and thinking and trying to understand and make sense of his, of his newfound faith and experience. And, and I'm reminded of the fact that the definition often given to the word theology is faith-seeking understanding. He had this faith that he'd now experienced and had and placed in Jesus Christ, but he had to make sense of this. Uh, he comes back to Damascus and he spends three years in Damascus and there he's preaching and ministering and with real boldness he's converting people and drawing people to Jesus Christ and, and this unnerves the Jewish leadership there that the man who once had been the persecutor of the church is now leading Jews and Gentiles to faith in Jesus and ultimately at the end of three years he's, uh, he's forced to flee because some there want to kill him. He, he spends two weeks in Jerusalem with the Apostle Peter and also with James, the brother of the Lord. And they're undoubtedly listening to the stories firsthand from these witnesses to Jesus Christ. And then he goes back to Tarsus, his hometown in Cilicia. 
And in Tarsus, he spends years in Tarsus and the area around there preaching and teaching and, and also tent making, providing a living for himself. 14 years after the time of his conversion, Barnabas is sent to find Paul in Tarsus and brings him back to Syrian Antioch. Antioch continues to be a huge and vibrant city to the present day. The Orontes River runs right through the middle of the city. In Paul's day, the city was built on one bank of the Orontes River, and it's known as Antioch on the Orontes because of this river, differentiating it from the many other cities called Antioch throughout Asia Minor and this part of the world. Now, one of the only ancient sites in the city today is uh, from perhaps the first or second centuries, uh, probably much later, is a cave church. This is called the Cave Church of St. Peter. And the tradition was that St. Peter carved out this cave and uh, expanded this cave, and it became the first place of Christian worship in the city of Antioch as, uh, as Paul and the Gentiles and, and the Jews that were there who were followers of Jesus were worshiping together. And so the believers lay their hands on Paul and Barnabas and they send them out on their first official missionary journey. As we bring this session to a close, there were two things I wanted to really focus on. The first had to do with Ananias. I think about Ananias and I think about the courage it took for him. First of all, his willingness to listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, Ananias, go and find this man Saul. And so one of the questions I would ask of us, of me and of you, is are you listening and paying attention to the voice of the Spirit? Because you see, God calls all of us. God called Ananias at that moment to do something that took courage and boldness to go to a man who had been arresting Christians and offer him life. And, and for all he knew, I mean, he had to trust that God was going to be with him, that God was calling him, that, that, uh, that he wasn't going to be arrested by Saul or persecuted or even put to death as Saul had done with Stephen. Ananias had courage. And when God called him, he said yes. And I wonder, who are the people? I mean, if Ananias could do this, who are the people that God might be calling you to share your faith with, calling you to help open the eyes of another person who's spiritually blind? And as that happened, you know, Ananias is nowhere else mentioned in the Bible. We don't read about him again. But the impact that he had in that one place where he was faithful, that one time where he said yes, and he went and he shared the good news, changed the world. But the second thing I want us to notice as we close this session, the Apostle Paul yielded his life wholly to Christ. That was the beginning of his Christian life. When he finally said, here I am, Lord. Everything I am, everything I have, everything I thought I knew, every dream I ever had, I turn it over to you, and I invite you to make that your prayer today. Like the Apostle Paul, to accept Jesus Christ, to put your trust in Him, and to yield everything you are and everything you have to Him, and you begin that journey that Paul began of changing the world. As we uh, come to Holy Communion this evening, I do just want to reflect a little bit on those two points, those last two points of Adam's in, uh, in the video, these two aspects of, uh, of Paul's life and experience. And um, the whole aspect of Ananias, I find it fascinating that he isn't mentioned anywhere else in Scripture, that he didn't write anything in, uh, in the New Testament, but so much of what we have, so much of the richness of our theology is because of his faithfulness to God, because he prized being faithful to God above his own, uh, even his own physical well-being. And it's interesting that, uh, that when God calls us to do things and when, we, when we're faced with the opportunity to be faithful, we often don't know if it's going to go anywhere or we don't think it's going to go anywhere. Um, I wonder if Ananias even imagined what would happen out of his faithfulness to God. 
I read a lovely story of, um, of a man who he didn't think he had done anything wonderful for the kingdom at all. All he had ever done was, uh, was tell a couple of kids that they need to go to Sunday school and, and he had made a way to get them there, whether he picked them up on his uh, tractor and trailer or whether he drove them there in his car. He said to them, you should be in Sunday school and I'll, I'll make a plan to get you there um, every Sunday morning. And so he did that and um, that was really all he did. And I think uh, he died not knowing whether there was any significance to having done that. But one of the kids who he was taking to Sunday school was actually Billy Graham who ended up spreading the gospel far and wide uh, across the world. And, and this, this man died long before Billy Graham entered into, into his uh, main ministry. But it's, uh, you wonder what would have happened had it not been for his faithfulness, for it not been his desire to, to do what God was asking him to do. And there are moments when, when we are presented with opportunities to do things like that. When, when God calls us to step out of our comfort zones, and it is always stepping out of our comfort zone. If it was just in our comfort zone, well, then we would do it without worrying about it. But it's specifically because God needs to work through us, and, uh, and we have to step out of our comfort zone to do it. And it's in those moments that we need to remember this part of Paul's story that, that rested on one person's faithfulness uh, to God in one moment. But the second thing that I want to just mention is uh, the fact that Paul went back to Tarsus for a while. Uh, when we read the Gospels, we have this kind of, uh, or, the, or Scripture, we can read as much or as little of it as we want. And we read without any sense of time in between passages. We almost read it like it's just this, this story that unfolded one day after the next. But it's fascinating to me to, to think of the fact that after his conversion experience, Paul went back uh, to Damascus for, for almost four years. And, um, and those four years, yes, he was, he was ministering and so on, but there are none, none of what he did is really recorded in, uh, in the scriptures that we have. The Paul that we have started the, the, the stories we have of Paul, the missionary journeys that he did, was after his four years in Damascus and after then 10 years when he went back into Tarsus. So 14 years after his conversion, we really start hearing about the missionary journeys of Paul as he and Barnabas head out and, and start these churches. And uh, it's fascinating to me that, that we kind of read it almost, and I'm guilty of this myself. Oh, Paul had this wonderful Damascus Road conversion experience. God downloaded everything he needed to download into Paul's head, and off he went. We had this powerful ministry. But it wasn't. 14 years of preparation between conversion and, and ministry you wonder, what was Paul doing during that time? Well, I really believe that Paul was actually working out his faith, that he was trying to reconcile what he had spent his whole life learning uh, up to that point. You heard Adam speak about the kind of education that he had. He came from a, a, a well-known family. He had had the best education that was available to him to have, and he was fully believing that this, the way was incorrect. 
And suddenly he had to rework everything in terms of what he knew. And I find that those 14 years were times of, of preparation, times where, where, where God was really just saying, uh, let me equip you, let me, let me lead you, um, let me put the pieces of your life together after they've been shattered um, in this way. And very often there's a, a sense for us where, where we face these moments of, of almost, uh, we may think that God is silent. We may think uh, we can't hear him or we don't know what God is doing. But I believe that through reflection and through quiet and through time spent just being faithful to God, there are times in our lives when God is taking pieces of our life and putting them into a picture, putting them into some sort of a masterpiece of what he wants to use in terms of our faithfulness. And very often these kind of things happen after we face uh, something difficult, after something kind of shatters our world or changes how we view things or, or, or things go wrong. And, and we spend time saying, well, well where is God? And I don't believe for a second that God causes those things to happen, but I do believe God says, let me take time and put pieces back together for you. Let me, let me work. Let's work as you reflect, as you journey, as you grow, as we, as we focus together. Let me, let me rebuild what's taking place. It's interesting that throughout Scripture, actually, there's this building process of God. Um, Abraham, there was, there was 25 years between his promise of having a son and actually having a son. Can you imagine that? 25 years. We just kind of read the story. Oh, God promised him that he would have a son and then he had a son. But there, there's 25 years. You would think in those 25 years you would start saying, really? Was God serious? I might have misunderstood what he was saying. Moses, as well, was called to lead the Hebrews out of the desert. Forty years later, he actually started doing the job. Jesus goes to the temple at 12 years old. And at 12 years old, the high priests are already saying, hey, there's something special about this kid. But 18 years later is only when he actually gets baptized and starts doing his ministry. There's this, this time of preparation. When, um, when I was called into ministry, we... Um, I said uh, it was a long process of journeying through this call and wanting to know, is God serious about me going to ministry? I was quite happy doing engineering. I'd had enough of the ministry, to be honest, having grown up in the church. I thought it's time to get out and make some money. Well, <laughs> wasn't that came to fruition, didn't it? But, uh, <clears throat> but there was a, a, I eventually got to the point and said, okay, God, I'll go into the ministry for you. Here I go. Where do I sign up? It ended up being three years later before I could actually enter into the candidating process of the Methodist Church. And at the time, I thought to myself, what on earth? I finally say yes, and now I'm sitting around uh, doing, well, I was doing sort of ministry, but not in the sense of what I thought I should be doing. And yet, when I look back now on those three years, I don't know where I would be without them. They were such formative years for me. There were times of, of thinking about ministry. And, and at the time, I had, um, uh, I had joined a, a church in a different part of our circuit. My dad was at another church, and I was at this one. So there was a, a sense for me in which he was close enough to be a reference point, but far away enough to let me develop on my own. And that, when I think back of those three years, how crucial it was that God was just kind of saying, all right, now that, 
now that your whole world has been changed, let me take some time and put the puzzle pieces back together. Let me put this into a picture of what's going to be um, for your life. In this uh, world where we live, where everything is instantaneous, where you can, if you want something, you can get on your mobile, you can order it, it'll be here tomorrow or, or whenever, you know, we, we live in this instantaneous world. And I think we forget sometimes that actually God is a God of time and God takes time. We need to spend time reflecting. We need to spend time being patient. We need to spend time listening because in those moments, God is actually putting together the pieces of our lives just the way he wants them to be. So I pray that as we uh, listen to the story of Paul and as we share the sacrament of Holy Communion tonight, it may be a moment for us of committing to that sense of, of being faithful to God, of, uh, of where he leads like Ananias, we will go, and, uh, and where we hear the sense of, of silence, we'll be willing to reflect, we'll be willing to to let God piece together our lives in the way he wants them to be. As we uh, prepare for Holy Communion, we're going to sing the liturgy, which is Remember Me, and, uh, and then...